How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study, we always make sure that we're in fellowship. We recognize that uh, in the church age, it is God the Holy Spirit who is the one who makes the doctrines of the Scriptures understandable to us, and that apart from His ministry, we can uh, only learn the Scriptures academically. We cannot learn them in a way that accrues to our spiritual growth and spiritual advancement. So we always make sure that, that in case we have uh, unconfessed sin in the life, that we are we have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can confess our sins in the privacy of our priesthood to God the Father in preparation for the study of the Word. It also enables those who have been here before to uh, quit moving around and put their, uh, get their little table up and don't knock it off like the guy who was sitting there last week. <laughs> you know, you've been around before. You haven't done it yet, but we still have that cold lake over there. <laughs> So, with that, let's uh, prepare for our study of the Word by, with uh, prayer. So, let's bow our heads together. Father, we do thank you that we have this time to gather together to study your word, that our thinking might be refreshed by the absolute truth of your word, and and may the searchlight of the truth of doctrine expose the erroneous thinking, the false assumptions that we have. May our confidence in your plan be uh, strengthened as we recognize that history is the outworking of your plan from eternity past, and that Jesus Christ controls history, and though there are trends and there are ebbs and flows and there are times when there is much blessing and prosperity. There are also times of adversity and depression and heartache and uh, suffering in human history. But through it all, you are working out your plan that culminates in your maximum glory. Now, we pray as we continue our study that we might uh, be challenged by these things, that we might appreciate great greater how you are putting all things together for the uh, ultimate good of the millennial kingdom and eternity and the resolution of the angelic conflict. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We have been studying dispensations. Dispensation comes from the Greek word oikonomia, which relates to the idea of administration. So a dispensation is a, uh, an administrative period in the outworking of God's plan in human history, and that human history is a combination of successive, uh, a succession of administrations, each one determined by a development in the revelation of God. And for that reason, I uh, emphasize that the covenants primarily and are especially in the Old Testament are moved along by a change in Covenants. A covenant is a contract uh, between two parties, and in terms of the biblical covenants, there are the two parties, God the party, the first part, and man or human being or nation are usually represented by one individual, like Abraham stands for the whole nation of Israel, Moses stood for the whole nation of Israel, that a man or a nation uh, is party of the second part. There are eight biblical covenants. The Gentile covenants in the Old Testament are three. The Edenic covenant from the creation to the fall. The Adamic covenant, which is a revision of the Edenic or creation covenant. And that covers the period of time from the fall to the flood. And then there's a third or a second revision of the creation covenant with Noah, the Noahic covenant, whose provisions are still in effect today. Uh, 
those covenants were unconditional. Then there are the Jewish covenants. The primary unconditional Jewish covenant that we have studied is the Abrahamic covenant given in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, confirmed in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, and uh, reconfirmed to Abraham's son Isaac and grandson Jacob, so that Jewishness is determined not simply by relationship to Abraham, but by relationship to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham is the father of the Jewish people, the Jewish race. It is Moses who is the father of the Jewish nation. That took place with the conditional or temporary covenant given on Mount Sinai and described in Exodus 20 through Exodus 40. Now, last week we began looking at the three developments of the Abrahamic uh, covenant precepts. These are land, seed, and blessing. If there's going to be a successful nation, there has to be three things. You have to have a land where the nation that the people are going to occupy. There has to be a proper leadership of that nation, and there has to be a law code. If you think about land, seed, and blessing in a slightly different way, what you have is the land of Israel. The seed relates ultimately to Jesus Christ and the Davidic promise, the Davidic covenant, eternal leadership for the nation. And the new covenant replaces the old covenant, which was the law, and it is the new law that God places in the heart of Israel. So what we're going, we see here is almost a telescoping type of effect where our stair step, where God successively builds his revelation. And he starts off with the Abrahamic covenant, and then he comes in with the land covenant, the real estate covenant, which describes the boundaries of the land for Israel in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. And then uh, that develops the land promise of the Abrahamic covenant. Then there's the Davidic covenant, which promises an eternal dynasty to David. That's covered in 2 Samuel 7 and in 1 Chronicles, in parallel passage. And then there is what we will come to tonight in our study, the New Covenant. This is the eighth covenant and final covenant that we will study. Now, the real estate, the Davidic and New Covenant, do not come into actual application until the Millennial Kingdom. They are foretold and promised in the Old Testament, but they do not actually go into effect until Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. So in terms of understanding dispensations, they don't apply yet. Now, we need to see what the dispensations are that we have studied so far because we will move a little bit further in our dispensational understanding of history. There are two broad age times. There's the first period is the age of the Gentiles, and we see in this chart how the covenants shift dispensations. The Edenic covenant inaugurates the dispensation of human perfection. The fall ends it. The Adamic covenant inaugurates the dispensation of conscience. That ends with the flood. The Noahic covenant governs the dispensation of civil government. Those three dispensations are all in the age of the Gentiles. During that time, God is working through one people. He is just working. He's working through the Gentiles as a whole. But because of the failure that occurs at the end of the dispensation of civil government at the Tower of Babel, when instead of scattering over the earth, everybody gathers together. Uh, there's a large gathering, whether not everyone, but a large gathering of people at uh, Babel, Babel. Uh, they build a ziggurat there as a way of asserting their unity and their independence, and their, uh, it's almost as if they were shaking their fist in the face of God. So God scattered the languages in judgment. At that point, God no longer works through the Gentiles as a whole. Question has come up. Uh, why do you start the age of the Jews with Abraham instead of at Sinai? The nation isn't formalized until they get the Mosaic Law at Sinai, but it starts with Abram, with the call of Abram in Genesis 12, because at that point, God no longer works directly 
are immediately through the Gentiles. From the time he calls Abram, from that point on, God works, God's blessings to the Gentiles are mediated through the Jews. There's no longer any direct revelation from God to the Gentiles. It is mediated through the Jews. All blessings to the human race from God are mediated through the Jews. So that's why the Abrahamic covenant makes a major shift to the age of Israel. Age of Israel is divided into two periods: the dispensation of the patriarchs from Abraham to the to Sinai and the dispensation of the Mosaic law at Sinai. And then we have a period of history that is truly unique. It is the messianic dispensation. And we will get to that, I believe, tonight before we finish, which is a transition period. It is an offer of the kingdom to Israel. The Messiah comes and offers the kingdom to Israel in fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophets. It's a legitimate offer to Israel. If Israel had accepted it, we don't know what the backup plan would have been. Jesus would still have had to go to the cross to die for our sins, to pay the penalty, because that's the foundation for the new covenant. But if they had accepted him as Messiah, the Messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom, would have begun at that point. The new covenant would have been uh, inaugurated at that point. It was not inaugurated. It was offered, but because his Messiahship was rejected, the uh, new covenant, the inauguration of the new covenant was postponed until his second coming. The Davidic covenant fulfillment is postponed until the second coming when Jesus Christ, the greater son of David, comes to the earth and at that point establishes his kingdom. The land promise is postponed until Jesus Christ comes at that time and restores regenerate Israel to the land, defeats their enemies at Armageddon, and establishes the boundaries promised in the real estate covenant. So the Messianic age is a, uh, an offer of the kingdom, and it is a ful- in, in it, Jesus Christ fulfills the requirements of the law. So in that sense, it looks back. But he fulfills the requirements of the law in his humanity through the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. He is indwelt and filled by God the Holy Spirit, and on that basis he lives a spiritual life which becomes the precedent he sets the pattern for the, spirit, the unique spiritual life of the church age. This is why it's transitional. It looks back in the sense that it fulfills the law, all the requirements up to that point, but in the way he does it, he sets the pattern and precedent for the church age to come, which is unannounced in the Old Testament. It was unforeseen in the Old Testament, and only after the cross, only at the night before the cross, in the upper room discourse, did Jesus begin to give uh, instruction regarding the age to come? So that's the Old Testament dispensation period. Now, how do these three covenants that we're looking at now that relate to the millennial kingdom, how, how are they fulfilled? We look at the promises that were made in the Old Testament and their eventual fulfillment. The promises were made and they will be fulfilled in the future, but they haven't been fulfilled. The kingdom was offered. It wasn't inaugurated when Jesus came the first time. Now, the reason I'm making an issue out of that terminology is it is very important. There has been a a development in dispensational studies in the last 15 years called progressive dispensationalism. And the idea comes... The idea of progressive comes from the fact that God progressively institutes the millennial kingdom. It is a progression. It's not a one-shot thing. And so the terminology that progressive dispensationalists are using is inauguration. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom at the first advent, and it is brought in in its entirety, in its fullness, at the second coming. In other words, it's already here. Jesus inaugurated it. It's already here, but it's not yet here in its entirety so that today we can experience a foretaste of millennial blessings, and that is used by some groups to justify the uh, presence of the sign gifts, the presence of speaking in tongues, etc., and that's a mistranslation, misapplication, actually, of Joel 2, 
the, in Peter's use of the Joel 2 passage, which we'll get to tonight, in Acts 2 when, on the day of Pentecost. And we're going to have to take some time to examine that, and we will hit it a couple of different ways. We'll just briefly brush it tonight, and it will probably be another couple of weeks, maybe next week when we start with the church age, that we will get to that because it is a crux issue for many different reasons, and we need to understand that because it does lay the basis for the church age. So here's the outline of history. The Old Testament, you have the formation period of Israel. You have that one timeline uh, formation. The top line gives us the, uh, the periods in Israel's history, formation of Israel, patriarchs and Moses, the theocracy, which covers the period of the conquest and judges, the monarchy, the united monarchy, and the divided monarchy, and that's the period governed by the kings. Then there's the 70-year exile of the southern kingdom in the Babylonian captivity, which is the time of Ezekiel and Daniel. Then there's the restoration under Ezra and Nehemiah. And then the shaded area represents the age of Messiah, when Jesus was incarnate on the earth. And then you have the church age, built on the foundation of the apostles. Then the upward arrow is the... um, Rapture, that small period in between is the tribulation, and then the millennial kingdom. That gives us the scope of history. The Abrahamic covenant is given to Abraham in roughly 2000 B.C., and the real estate covenant at Deuteronomy 28 takes place just before they go into the land, 1400 B.C., and that is fulfilled at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Then you have the Davidic covenant, which was given to David, roughly 1,000 B.C., and that is fulfilled in the Millennial Kingdom. And then we have the New Covenant, which we will are introducing right now, and we will see how that is fulfilled because there has been a controversy and some confusion over the nature of the New Covenant terminology in the uh, New Testament. Is there one New Covenant? Or two new covenants? Is there a new covenant to the church and a new covenant to Israel or just a new covenant to Israel? And we will have to uh, try to cut that theological Gordian knot this evening. So let's begin by looking at the key text for the new covenant. The, we will cover this under the new covenant under five headings. Six headings. Six headings. Scripture will be the first, then the persons involved, then C, its importance, D, the provisions, E, the confirmations, and F, the relationship of the church to the new covenant. That's the rough outline. We'll start with Scripture. The main central passage for is for the, this uh, for the new covenant is Jeremiah 31. 31 through 34. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor, or each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, this is an important passage for giving us an understanding of new covenant provisions. And uh, just by way of observation, while we have the text in front of me, notice that the characteristics of the new covenant are that they shall not teach again. So there will not be a need for the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher for Israel during the new covenant period. Uh, or at least evangelists, it seems from the context, each man, they shall not teach again, each man his neighbor, saying, they shall all know, for they shall all know me. In other words, that seems to imply at, at 
least evangelism and may involve even more, that the knowledge of the Lord will be uh, different, perhaps intuitively known, uh, rather than taught as it is in this church age. What are the, uh, the persons involved in the covenant? Let's uh, go back and look at that first verse. The persons are, Behold, days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So God is the party of the first part. And the party of the second part is the nation Israel, described as the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Notice there's no mention of the church here. It's just the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So these are the... the um, Two parties to the covenant. The context shows that this is clearly a replacement of the Mosaic covenant. It's not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, uh, which they broke. So the Mosaic covenant's viewed here as a broken covenant that needs to be replaced. That's why we have emphasized that it is a temporary covenant. Okay, A was the Scripture, 30, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. B was the person's God party, the first part. Israel and Judah party, the second part. See its importance. Its importance is that this covenant develops the third paragraph of the Abrahamic covenant, the blessing portion. The real estate covenant expanded the land section. The Davidic covenant expanded the seed portion. And the new covenant expands the blessing, it gives definition to how God is going to bless all the nations through Israel. Now remember, in the, under the Abrahamic covenant, God promised Abraham and demonstrated it in Abraham's lifetime, said, through you all the nations on the earth will be blessed. So what you had is God, party of the first part, making an unconditional covenant with Abraham, who is party of the second part. So you have God party of the first part, Abraham party of the second part, and that's the covenant. That's the contract. Nobody else enters into that contract. Just God and Abraham. By virtue of that covenant, there are collateral blessings. And those blessings extend to all the Gentiles. Gentiles are not contract partners. They are not part of the first part. They're not part of the second part. But they are read into the uh, collateral blessings aspect by virtue of the third section. So we've already established that. Now I'm going to come back to the significance of that in a minute. But if you, you won't understand the relationship of the church to the New Covenant if you don't understand this. You don't have to be a covenant party to get the blessings from the covenant. That's the principle. There are seven provisions in the New Covenant. Seven provisions. Let's outline them. They are, first of all, an un it is an unconditional covenant. That means it's a unilateral covenant. God is not saying to Israel, if you do this, if you do that, if you do this other thing, if you're obedient, then I'm going to do this. He is, he is saying, I'm going to do this eventually. And it is not conditioned upon behavior on Israel's part. That's what we mean by an unconditional covenant. Also, unconditional covenants are eternal. We're going to see that God says He is calling this an everlasting covenant, just as He did with Abraham, just as he did with David, just as he did in the real estate covenant. The only one that's temporary is the Mosaic covenant. So he makes a covenant between God and both houses of Israel, Judah, I mean both houses of the nation Israel, Judah and Israel, the southern kingdom Judah and the northern kingdom Israel. Remember, the northern kingdom went out under divine discipline, fifth cycle of discipline in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom. And then the southern kingdom went out under discipline in 586 B.C. And Jeremiah is giving this prophecy at a time when the northern kingdom is already out and has already been destroyed. And it is not long before the southern kingdom. In fact, during Jeremiah's lifetime, the southern kingdom is wiped out by the Babylonians. And Jeremiah himself becomes an exile to 
Egypt. So it's just between, in this passage, it's just between God and Israel. Second point, it's a distinct covenant from the Mosaic covenant. It is, quote, not like the covenant or not according to the covenant made when Israel came out of Egypt, as stated in verse 32 of Jeremiah 31. Third, it promises the regeneration of Israel in verse 33, as well as in Isaiah 59, 21. In verse 33, it says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and on their heart. That is, their, within them, that's the whole nation. Their heart, that's the whole nation. I will write it. It is an inclusive covenant. That I will be their God and they shall be my people. It includes all Jews. This is further seen in Isaiah 59:21. This will be universal among all Jews from the least to the greatest in verse 34 uh, and as well as in Isaiah 61:9. So universal salvation among the Jews. Isaiah 59:21. God says, And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit which is upon you. That's the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring. That's three generations, says the Lord, from now and forever. It is an everlasting covenant with them and all of their descendants during this time of its um, inauguration. So there is universal salvation in Israel during under the new covenant. Not for the Gentiles. But all Jews will be saved in the Millennial Kingdom. Fourth provision. There is a universal forgiveness of sins according to verse 34. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Fifth, there is the indwelling and filling of God the Holy Spirit in Ezekiel 36:27, And it's implied here in verse 34 of Jeremiah, 30, Jeremiah 31, 34. And sixth, there is material blessing and prosperity for the nation like it has never had before. Jeremiah 32:41, Isaiah 61:8, and Ezekiel 34:25 to 27. I want you to pay attention to this. This is going to be crucial when we come back to look at some other passages, specifically the Joel 2 passage, to understand this in the context of Old Testament revelation. You have to go back to Leviticus 26. It's part of the Mosaic Covenant. God said, if you're obedient, I will prosper you in an abundant manner. And we're going to have to look at Leviticus 26 because we're not going to understand what God, the implications of the terminology in Joel 2 and in Ezekiel and in these other passages without understanding the, the Leviticus 26 um, setup. That's why the, it's so important to understand context. This last week when I was down in Houston and I was teaching on how to study the Bible, and I did the same thing here when uh, we had our class on Sunday night, just to emphasize context. A verse is in the context of a section or a paragraph. Often a verse is, uh, is just part of a sentence. You look at John 30. Uh, John 21, 30, uh, these, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name, is the second half of a sentence. You can't understand that if you don't look at the context of the previous sentence. You can't understand that if you don't look at the immediate context. When John says, but these are written, he's talking about these signs. You pick that up from the previous verse. But what signs? And I nailed everybody in the congregation on this this last week. It was glorious. I, I just love it when you get to pull this off on everybody. Uh, had them go home and do that for a homework assignment, was to sit down and go home. After we'd done a couple of exercises in class on observation, I sent them home with an assignment to write down as many observations as they could on John 21, um, 31. And they did. They came back the next day, and I said, okay, how many people tried to list all the, the, the signs in John? 30 or 40 people raised their hands. I said, how many were there? Some people had four. Most of them got seven. I said, you sure? What's the eighth one? There is no eighth one. You sure? No eighth one. 
Absolutely sure. Positive. Let's look at the context. Context, of course, in John 20 is the resurrection, which is what gives rise to the whole sign thing that it is the eighth sign. If you don't look at the context, you're going to miss what a passage is saying. Now, the greater context of any passage, these signs, is the Bible. The reason John emphasized the signs in the Gospel of John was because these were the signs indicated by the Old Testament prophets in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel that you would know that the Messiah had come. The the lame would be healed. The blind would be given sight. um, And all of this was part of, of what to expect when the Messiah came. So you can't understand the signs in John if you don't understand Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. So the context is the Bible. And you have to compare Scripture with Scripture and understand biblical theology from Genesis to Revelation to properly interpret things. So if we're going to understand some of these problematic passages, we have to do a little uh, look throughout the entire Old Testament to catch the significance of the terminology. So remember that an essential part of the New Covenant is a promise of material blessing and prosperity in the nation Israel. And then the final one is that there will be a, a millennial temple built. A sanctuary will be rebuilt on the Temple Mount, which means something will happen. Of course, we know that something will happen in the tribulation because a tribulation temple has to be, be built there. Sanctuary will be rebuilt, the fourth Jewish temple called the Millennial Temple. In Ezekiel 37, 26 and 27, and given a detailed description in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. Okay, those are the seven provisions describing the new covenant. Let's look at the passages that where God confirms the new covenant and correlates it in other Old Testament passages. There are eight passages, or really nine passages. I added one after, um, after I made up my notes. I was reflecting on things this afternoon and came up with a ninth passage to look at. Nine passages to examine in confirmation of the new covenant. The first is Isaiah 55.3. Isaiah 55.3, God says, Incline your ears and come to me. Listen that you may live. Notice this is an invitation to come and hear doctrine. God is the one who invites and calls. We do not invite him. We uh, continually have to fight the misrepresentation of the gospel as inviting Jesus into the life or inviting Jesus into our heart. God is the one who calls. He is always the subject of the verb kaleo, to call or to invite. We do not invite Jesus. He invites us. And he invites us to listen to doctrine and to pay attention to it. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Now, what were the faithful mercies shown to David? That's the Davidic covenant. That shows the connection. What we see in the in these new covenant promises is that they are related to and built on, number one, the land promises, and number two, the king promises, the Davidic covenant. So we see here that the new covenant in Isaiah 55.3 is, is built on the realities, the grace provision of Messiah in the Davidic covenant because it is the Messiah who will inaugurate the new covenant when he inaugurates the Davidic kingdom. Second passage, Isaiah 61, 8 and 9. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering, and I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. So that says that in spite of Israel's sinfulness, in spite of of their apostasy, at that point, God is still going to establish an everlasting covenant with them. This is the grace of God. It's not based on who we are, what we have done. It is based exclusively on His character and His love. Isaiah 61, 9, Then their offspring will be known among the nations. So all of this is to testify, to witness to God's character, to His glory among the nations, and I would say by application among the angels. 
Their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. So it's talking about the blessing that will come to Israel uh, after God punishes their sins. God will punish their sins according to uh, the Leviticus 26 passage because of their disobedience. And after punishing Israel for their sins, God then makes this everlasting covenant with them that results in their salvation. All Jews in the land and out of the land will be saved at that time that this is talked to. All the, their offspring will be blessed. Isaiah 61.9. Third passage, Isaiah 59.21. And as for me, this is my contract, my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit, the Holy Spirit, which is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. So it is an everlasting covenant that promises universal salvation to Israel. Now, if you don't think the universal regeneration is that clear yet, well, it becomes progressively clear as we go through these, these passages. The fourth passage is Jeremiah 32.40. Jeremiah 32:40. As I've said before, when you're taking notes on this, it's good to daisy chain this through your in your margin in your Bible as you go from one passage to another. Just make a note in the side margin to the next reference, and then you can follow it later on. Uh, Jeremiah 32:40. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them. To do them good, he will do them good, in other words. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. It will be impossible for Jews in the millennial kingdom to turn away from God. That's what he is saying in those passages. I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that is, in the mentality of their soul. Their respect for their God will be so great after the serious discipline the nation goes through in the uh, tribulation, that they won't ever turn away from the Lord. See, Israel went through the... Think back on the analogy with with, uh, the Babylonian captivity. Israel was taken out of the land and disciplined in the Babylonian captivity because of their idolatry, because of their compromise with the idols in in the land of Canaan. Since the Babylonian captivity, Jews have never gone back to idolatry. They learned their lesson. They got sucked into to legalism, but they don't, and, and re, religion, but they don't get back into idolatry. So that they learn that lesson. Well, they're going to get seven years of hell, literally hell on earth, during the tribulation, and that is going to be so profound that um, it's kind of like that last spanking your parents gave you. The reason it was the last one is because you finally got the lesson down and didn't need any more. At least we'll be optimistic and hope that that was the reason. Verse 40, I will, put their fear, I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me and I will rejoice over them to do them good and I will faithfully plant them where? In this land. That goes back to land covenant provision. The real estate contract. And I I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. So God commits them, commits himself to restoring them to the land as a regenerate nation. Then we come to the fifth passage, Ezekiel 16, 60. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. That's when he made it at that time in the time of their youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. The first covenant he mentions is the um, Abrahamic covenant. That's not the Mosaic covenant. He's remembering the Abrahamic covenant. That's the first time he mentioned the blessing concept. I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. So that it's on the basis of that covenant made with Abraham, that they are brought back into the land, and then the new covenant is established with them. And then the sixth passage, 
The sixth passage is a lengthy one. I didn't put it up on a, on a screen. Turn to Ezekiel 34. Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 34, verse 25. This is a crucial passage. In fact, before we go to this, um, hold your finger there if you're there already and turn back to Leviticus 26. Let's look at Leviticus 26 to give, give us a contextual framework for understanding uh, Ezekiel 34. Leviticus is the third book in the Bible, the third book of the first five called the Pentateuch. And Leviticus 26 outlines God's blessing promises and cursing promises to the nation as part of the Mosaic Covenant. This is typical of a suzerain vassal treaty as we have studied. Starts off in verse 26. You shall not make for yourselves idols, which reminds them of the first commandment in the Ten Commandments, the prologue to the Mosaic Contract. You shall not make for yourself, yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes, this is the conditional aspect of obedience. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their season. Pay attention to that. In an agricultural environment, rains are very important. You don't want to have too much. You don't want to have too little. And they must come at the proper time. In Israel, there are two rainy seasons, one in the spring, one in the fall. And they come at the right time for, for two different, so they can have two separate harvests. I will give you rains in their season. They are called in Israel the early rains for the spring rains and the latter rains for the fall rains. Now, pay attention. This is very important terminology to understand some of the wacko stuff that goes on today in trying to ram, cram, and jam people's mystical agendas into the Scriptures. God is talking in terms of everyday meteorological agricultural phenomenon here i'm going if you're he's outlining the fact that if you're obedient to me i'm going to bless the nation there is one thing i've seen again and again in the old testament the old testament is less abstract than the new testament it's very concrete they don't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the teaching of the Holy Spirit. They don't have the filling of the Holy Spirit. So God, the lessons God gives Israel are very, um, uh, they're very visual. They're very concrete. And he says, if you're obeying the law, I will bless you financially. And the second tithe, remember there were three tithes. Two were annually. One was every third year. Ten percent of the, the second tithe, ten percent of the gross national product, was to be brought to the temple, and the nation was to have a party, a celebration to God for his blessing for the year. Now, if in one year the gross national product is $300 billion, and you bring 10% or $30 billion into the temple treasury and have a party, that is one heck of a party. Everybody can have a really good time and go home with a, with a serious hangover the next morning. Now, if you go out and the next year your gross national product is about 80 million, million, not billion, 80 million, 10 percent is 8 million, you can't quite have the same kind of party you had the year before. It's real obvious, folks, that we don't have the goods that we had last year. You know, we can't go out and, and, and buy single malt scotch. We've got to buy that horrible mixed stuff, you know, the blended stuff. We can't, we can't get fine uh, crafted beer. We've got to go get the, uh, and, and they talked about beer. Beer was an offering in the Old Testament. For those of you who don't remember, beer was an Old Testament offering. They translated strong drink in the King James, and everybody thinks that's like distilled beverages, but they didn't have distilled beverages until about the 9th or 10th century A.D. Uh, the the, the uh, strong drink was from the uh, Hebrew word shakak, which means barley beer. And uh, so instead of using a good, um, you know, good beer, they had to go out with that, you know, Coors or Budweiser or something, <laughs> something cheap like that. And 
And, you know, instead of filet mignon and prime rib, they're just they're, they're going down and getting uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken and Burger King because that's all they can afford this year. So it's real obvious something changed. Well, what changed? We must not have been obedient. See, God's giving them a real, visible, concrete, measurable standard by which to evaluate whether or not you're obedient to the Lord. Well, that's, that's what he's talking about here, is if you're obedient to me, there is going to be agricultural prosperity. The fields are going to be full. You're going to get the right rain at the right time. The uh, crops are going to be abundant. The calves are going to be fat. The the, the bulls are going to be uh, productive, and there are going to be large herds and large flocks, and, and there's going to be an abundance for trade with other nations so you can import lots of goods. And negative trade balance, and there's going to be... See, there's a lot of economic lessons here. It's not just spiritual stuff. Uh, there's, there's biblical concepts of, of economics, which one day we'll probably have a chance to study. But God is simply emphasizing the fact that He is going to make them prosperous. I'll give you rains in your season so that the land will yield its produce, and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. There is nothing spiritual in this rain. Can I make it any more clear? Don't mysticize, allegorize, subjectivize the passage. Indeed, your threshing will last for you until great gathering. All winter long, you're going to be threshing wheat till, till the grapes are ripe. And then your grape gathering will last until sowing time. And you will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in the land. Security, that means there's no threat from foreign invasion, and there are no internal enemies. As, and then in verse 6, I will also grant peace in the land so that you may lie down uh, with no one uh, making you tremble. I shall also eliminate, pay attention to this. Anybody here, any, if there's any of you left who, who have an uh, affinity for Greenpeace, and human control of ecology. Uh, I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land, and no sword will pass through your land. In other words, there won't be foreign invasion. God's going to, as part of the blessing, God says, harmful beasts are eliminated from the land. So what do we see today? We, we've had tremendous blessing in this nation, this continent, because there, we, we don't have the kinds of poisonous snakes and, and, and horrible animals, uh, just violent animals, lions and and tigers and, and leopards that, that they had, and, and many of them have been removed. See, that's a sign of blessing, is to remove these harmful beasts, the, the, the wolves that destroy the flocks. That's a sign of blessing that they've been removed. So, so man in his arrogance comes back and says, Oh, those poor animals, let's reintroduce them. See, God is saying that's stupidity. You know, you remove them so that you can have prosperity in the land. You don't reintroduce them. And last year, you know, you got problems with bear sightings over here in Ledyard. I heard about one, one guy who was a fireman out there, and he went out in his backyard, and, and there's a bear on top of his rabbit hutch, Dave. He's got a bear sitting on top of his rabbit hutch. And he couldn't shoot it because, you know, you'll be thrown in jail for shooting an, an endangered species. So... He, got, he was a volunteer fireman, so he got in his truck and drove that back there and turns on the siren and all the, all the lights and the bear just looked at him like, who cares? <laughs> and he had to call the local wildlife officer to come out and, and um, uh, the wildlife officer showed him how to, how to scare him off. You act like a bear. This guy go, goes, ah! <laughs> raises his arm and scares the bear off. So, see, now you've learned... If you didn't learn any doctrine, you've learned how to scare the bears out of your backyard if they show up. So God promises prosperity. The removal of harmful animals is a sign of prosperity for Israel. Now, let's skip ahead to see how this is further in, developed and included within the same provision included in Ezekiel 34. So jump ahead to the New Covenant promise in Ezekiel 
Ezekiel 34:25 to 31. And God says, And I will make a covenant of peace with them. And what? Eliminate harmful beasts from the land. This isn't something that just occurred to Moses back in Leviticus 26. To include in the passage, this is something that is divine viewpoint, that, that is part of an advancing culture that is exercising the uh, human control, responsible control over ecology from the creation mandate. You remove the harmful animals from the land. You don't just say, oh, those poor little critters. You get rid of them. They are a hindrance to the development of the natural resources that God's given us. Eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. Now, this is a good time for me to tell you the story about when I was on a a wilderness leadership seminar at Honey Rock Camp out of Wheaton about 20 years ago. And we were, after three weeks in the wilderness, we had a 72-hour fast and solo out on the shores of Lake Superior, which has a mean temperature of 33 degrees which means no bacteria can grow there. So we had all the water we could drink, but we were warned that not to have any food with us. Some of us who were, I was young 20 years ago, I did not have a gray hair on my head, and I never saw a cow I couldn't, didn't think I could eat the entirety of, hooves, horns, and all. And um, I did not think I could go three days without food, but the fact was that there was the threat that we would not sleep securely because the bears would attack us. And so we piled all of our packs and everything in one central location. They were hauled up into trees. But several people did not do that, and their packs were absolutely dev- It's amazing what a bear can do to a, to a Kelty pack. So you remove the harmful beast so you can live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. Verse 26, And I will make them in the places around my hill, that's the location of the uh, temple, a blessing. And I will cause showers to come down when? In their season. It's talking about rain here, physical rain for agricultural prosperity in the millennial kingdom. They will be showers of blessing. It is a blessing to have have prosperity, financial and material prosperity in a nation. I just get nauseous every time I hear some idiot on television or on the radio uh, opine out of their uh, apostate negative volition that, oh, I just hated the 80s. It was so materialistic. You know, and their 501K plan has probably gone through the roof in the 90s. You know, that's just because they, they just didn't like a conservative administration, but we won't go there. Showers of blessing. Uh, physical rain in season, early rain and latter rain. Verse 27, also the tree of the field will yield its fruit and the earth will yield its increase and they will be secure in the land. See how that fits the context. It's talking about agricultural production. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bars of their yoke that occurs during the tribulation and have delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them that occurs at the battle of Armageddon and they will no longer be a prey to the nations. This relates to Joel 2.20. And the beasts of the earth will not devour them. Once again, we back to our wild animal stories. But they will live securely, and no one will make them afraid. Verse 29, And I will establish for them a renowned planting place, and they will not again be victims of famine in the land. That's because there will be continuous prosperity from generation to generation, your offspring, their offspring, all throughout the millennial kingdom. And they will not endure the insults of the nations anymore. This relates to Joel 2, 18 through 28. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. As for you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you are men, and I am your God, declares the Lord. So this passage tells us that as a result of the new covenant, Israel will enjoy all of the blessings described from verse 26 to 31, which were part of the package of blessings for obedience to the Mosaic Covenant, but they are included. They will, uh, they're included in the New Covenant, and they will never be removed from the land. Now, skip over a few pages to Ezekiel 37, verse 25. Ezekiel 37, verse 25. 
Well, let's go back to verse 24, pick up the... And my servant David, that's Davidic covenant, my servant David. David here is the servant. He's the prince in relation to the king, Jesus. Jesus is the king over the nations. David is king over Israel, a prince or servant to the Lord. My servant David will be king over them, king over over Israel. And they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. And they shall live on my land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. They will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. This is the new covenant. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. Notice God lives in their midst. That's new covenant. My dwelling place also shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Now we set it up. We're almost out of time, but having set it up, we can't stop till we look at Joel 2. Turn over to Joel chapter 2. Joel 2 is the second of the minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, then Amos. Comes after Dan- Hosea comes after Daniel. Joel 2, starting back in Joel, Joel 1, we have the um, description of the tribulation judgment, the desolation during the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a technical term that begins with the tribulation and ends with the, the introduction of the new covenant and the messianic kingdom. And we find in Joel... Chapter 2, the introduction of the coming of the kingdom. Look at verse 18. And the Lord will be zealous for His land and will have pity on His people. And the Lord will answer and say to His people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them, and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. See the terminology. See how it fits with all the other new covenant passages we've talked about. He's promising material blessing. They won't be a reproach anymore among the nations. That ties in with um, Ezekiel uh, 37 and Ezekiel chapter uh, 30, uh, back in 34, where God says that they will no longer be a reproach because God will be there. I will remove the northern army far from you. Verse 20 describes their uh, security. Verse 21, Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Verse 22, do not, fear beasts, do not fear beasts of the field. That's not, there is accurately a comma there. Do not fear beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. So there's productivity now. For the tree has borne its fruit, the fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. That's reminiscent of Ezekiel 34:27. There's agricultural prosperity and economic blessing. Verse 23, so rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for He has given you the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down from you the the rain, the early and latter rain as before. Notice those last two words, as before. See, what has happened in the charismatic camp is that starting in a, with some revivals, so-called healing revivals in the, right, in the era right after World War II, coming out of western Canada and then sweeping down to the U.S., they were calling this the latter rain, that the, uh, because of the confusion, and we'll get there. We're going to wrap all this together. In Acts 2, when Peter says, this is what the prophet Joel said, there's four different ways that you have a this is passage in, in the New Testament. You'll have to come back next time to learn what they are. But it is, one of them is, this is like. It is not saying this is a fulfillment of, because if you read Joel 2, Joel 2 didn't happen in Acts 2. Not one thing in Joel 2 happens in Acts 2. Not one thing. The old men don't dream dreams, and the young men don't see visions, and the women don't see dreams and visions and prophesy. There's not, the sun doesn't turn dark, the moon doesn't turn to blood. None of that happens in Acts 2. The only thing that happens in Acts 2 is they speak in tongues. Guess what? Speaking in tongues is not mentioned in Joel 2. The only thing that happens in Acts 2 doesn't happen in Joel 2. Everything mentioned in Joel 2 is absent from Acts 2. Because Peter's just making an, an analogous point that this is like. 
This is similar to. This shows us that God is working right now. This is supernatural. That's all he's saying. And it's not a, a latter rain, early rain and latter rain. And what happens is the, the charismatic mystics who, who dig deep into the meditation of their belly button come up with an interpretation that the early rain is tongues at the beginning of the church and the latter rain is tongues at the end of the church age. And these things have to happen in order for Jesus to come back. And uh, so then they start finding fulfilled prom- prophecies in the church age, which is absurd. And it's all because they're trying to force, ram, cram, and jam their heretical interpretation of tongues into the passage without reading the text. You know, the most important, the number one reason why most people misinterpret the Bible is because they just flat can't read. And they can't understand what they see with their eyes. So the, the context of Leviticus 26, the context of Ezekiel 34, the context of Ezekiel 37, all tells us that all that this passage is talking about is that there is going to be physical precipitation of H2O in the promised land that will assure agricultural prosperity and financial blessing during the millennial kingdom. That's all early and latter rain is talking about. It goes on in verse 24. The threshing floors will be full of grain. Vats will overflow. You can't come in and say, well, this means that we're going to be fat with spiritual growth. I mean, that's, that's allegorical, mystical, belly-button meditation, mumbo-jumbo that has nothing to do with biblical interpretation. And when pastors do that, congregations ought to rise up and throw them out the front door. But they don't do that. And it goes on and talks about how the creeping locusts, the stripping locusts, the gnawing locusts, in other words, we're back to the bad animals again, are going to be removed. This is not an army of locusts. This is Joel's army. There is an absurd teaching out there now that there is the rise of Joel's army, described as the creeping locust, stripping locust, and gnawing locust, that has to come up and is going to uh, purify the church. That's the kind of real allegorical... Uh, let me see, balderdash, skubala. I'll use that, a good Greek word describing um, uh, barnyard refuse. Skubala. Paul uses it in Philippians 3. And sad to say, I have a former Hebrew professor who I have heard on various tapes trying to do this kind of exegesis, and I mean, it just comes from the pit of hell. This is not biblical. Uh, and it's just talking about the fact that God's going to bless the nation and remove during the millennial kingdom all of these negative facets that are present during the current age. It will be time of an un- a time of unprecedented prosperity in the land because of regenerate Israel. And you shall have plenty to eat. See, if the locusts are there eating everything up, you won't have plenty to eat. You just have to interpret it literally. You don't have to go into this kind of mindless mumbo-jumbo. And you shall have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, which is reminiscent of Ezekiel 37, 26 to 28, that I am the Lord your God and there is no other and my people will never be put to shame. My people are Israel. This is not talking about the church. And it will come about, verse 28, In my Bible, I have some notes from the editor and outlines, but that's not in the original. Verse 28 follows verse 27. And it will come about after this. After what? Let's think in terms of context. After God has established them in the land and giving them prosperity, then I will pour out my Spirit. After the establishment of the new covenant. That's why we can't inaugurate the new covenant with Jesus' first coming. Because if you inaugurate the first the, the new covenant with Jesus first coming, then you put this stuff into the current age. And it's not happening. This isn't the millennial kingdom. If it is, we all must be living in a millennial ghetto. <laughs> it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, and even on the male and female servants I will put, pour out my spirit in those days, and I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke, The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood 
before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So this is put in, in context. It occurs at the right at the time of Armageddon, at the end of the tribulation, the establishment of the millennial kingdom, and the new covenant blessings that are inaugurated and established with the second coming of Christ. That's what this passage is talking about. So Joel 2 is clearly another new covenant passage related to the millennial kingdom. Now, that is as far as we can get this evening in relation to the new covenant in relation to Israel. We have one more passage to cover in the New Testament in Romans 11, 25 to 27, and then we'll come back and look at the relationship of the church to the new covenant where we will once again have to deal with the Joel 2 and Acts 2 issue as well as what does it mean in 1 Corinthians 11.25 when we are told that Paul is a minister of, of the new covenant. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for the time we've had to look at your word, the time we have to study this and see how clear it is and that you have helped us to understand this through the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would challenge us with these things and that we could see your tremendous hand in history as you are moving things towards ultimate ultimate conclusion and glorification of yourself and uh, victory and resolution of the angelic conflict. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.